<laughs> and uh, after this server came up to me and was like, this asshole wrote a review about our ramen and he said it's not good. And, <laughs> and that's, it, it, his review was not that brutal. It was just like, uh, well, I, I kind of like this and this more with it. But he, he wrote a decent review on it. And that, and that person was Mike, of course. Though, of course, that person was Mike. And uh, I, I kind of sent him a message and was just like, hey, I just wanted to kind of like clarify on some things with the ramen. It's not necessarily this, but it's this and this. Just like your standard, like, I'm embarrassed. I just yeah, want to tell yeah. you some more details about it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Way Ramen Podcast. In today's episode, we sit down with Eric Bentz, the chef behind the ramen at the Japanese-inspired pop-up Mochiko in Cincinnati, Ohio. Eric is actually the first traditionally trained chef on the podcast, and prior to getting super into making ramen, he worked at some really nice restaurants such as Momotaro in Chicago and Thomas Keller's French Laundry, a three-star Michelin restaurant. In this interview, we cover a broad range of topics, ranging from a chef's thought process to creating great bowls of ramen, to tips to getting a pop-up ramen restaurant off the ground in a non-traditional ramen market. If you're someone looking to up their ramen game at home, this episode is definitely for you because Eric gives you a lot of great tips on how to do that. So without further further ado here is eric bentz so yeah like um thank you again for coming on the podcast this is the second time we're trying to record this the zoom room kind of pooped itself but uh, discord seems to be working pretty good um yeah so could we talk about your who you are a little bit and how you got into making ramen well my name is eric bentz uh, i'm from cincinnati i'm living in cincinnati now i grew up a little bit north of cincinnati in like the suburbs area but um uh i mean i started cooking at kind of a later age i was like 22 23 uh pretty much everything else in life hadn't really worked out and it was my last resort and um i had read kitchen confidential and uh what else i read the momofuku cookbook and they had talked about going to cia and uh i i, I looked into that and saw how much it cost and was like well that's not gonna happen so i ended up going to community college uh, Cincinnati State, which worked out great because it was everything I needed. And um, I've been doing it ever since. I kind of worked my way up, started out in catering at a, doing weddings and such, which is not glamorous, but that's where I started to learn to cook. And I just kind of went to a better place and then a better place and then a better place. And then um, eventually I ended up working in a three-star Michelin restaurant in California called the French Laundry. And that's kind of where I peaked. <laughs> and I went to Chicago after that and started doing Japanese food because that's kind of what I always wanted to do. But Cincinnati, there's no Japanese restaurants for the most part. So I always had to do French and Italian and whatever. And uh, when I got to Chicago, I finally got to start going full bore into it. And that's kind of where uh, all this ramen stuff happened. That's That's amazing. Like, how did you get into French laundry? Like, what was that process like? Uh, I don't know. Honestly, it was crazy that it happened. I, I, I wrote this cover letter that was not a, not totally a lie, but I, I was just like, oh, I have exceptional knife skills and things <laughs> like that, and uh, kind of made myself sound a little better. And they, they gave me a call, and they were like, well, when can you come out here? And I was like, well, I need two weeks. I'm going to put in my notice. I'm going to move out of my apartment. I'm going to drive out there. And they were like, uh -huh. well... This is just for a kitchen trail, so we don't know if you have a job or not. And I was like, I don't care. I'll be there in two weeks. So I pretty much did it all and drove out there, did a um, 
a thing for two days, two or three days. It's called a kitchen trail there, but it's really like a stage, uh-huh. uh, which is kind of like a working tryout. And luckily, um, a guy had quit that day. It's standard like restaurant industry stuff that his girlfriend who worked there cheated on him and he couldn't work there anymore. So he, so I was like, I'll take his, I'll take his spot. And they were like, okay, Uh you're in. So that point it was like, now I need to find a place to live because I'm living in a hotel right now. And luckily I found Mm -hmm. a, a room with a Chinese woman named May and it was great. It was exactly what I needed. It was affordable because obviously nothing in California is very affordable if you're a low paid cop. Yeah. Um, yeah, and at yeah. the French Laundry, you you get paid minimum wage, mm-hmm. and uh, you work seventy five hours a week, so you make a decent amount of money working uh-huh. minimum wage there. But yeah. you're gonna you're gonna work. <laughs> that's that's incredible. And then how did you end up back in Chicago? Did you get like recruited to come back to Chicago or you saw like an opening there and then you left French Laundry to go to work oh. at the Momotaro? Well, this is non-ramen related, but like when oh. I was out in California, Elaine and I met. We met at a uh, a party. She's my partner with Mojico. Uh-huh. Um, and my life partner as well. And we uh we met. We were together for probably like a year or so and I was just like burnt out at the laundry and she was working mm-hmm. at Meadowood. Um another like a uh, resort that has a great reputation and we were both just getting kind of beat down and exhausted cause it's brutal. Um, mm-hmm. and we were like, well, we need to find somewhere to go. I had looked into like Oakland for a while and didn't really find anything there. And then eventually she was like, well, Chicago sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was like, yeah, that's closer to home. Um, there's this place called Smith that I would like to work at. So I tried to set up a stage there and they're like, yeah, let me know when you're in town. And uh, that was it. We drove to, or I think we drove to Cincinnati first and then drove up to Chicago after that. But I contacted the guy at Smith to try to stage there and do my tryout thing. I thought like after working at the French Laundry, everybody would think I was a big deal, but really no one cared. Because in Chicago, everybody's worked at Alinea. Alinea is like the three-star Michelin restaurant in Chicago. And everybody's been there and worked there for a month and then kind of quit because it's a it's uh-huh. probably even more brutal than the French Laundry. And uh, <laughs> they were like, "Well, we don't care. We have a linea, which is better than the French Laundry, so your resume <laughs> doesn't really mean anything to us." So, I eventually I staged it. I staged at one place uh, for like a sous chef job that I just didn't get a good feeling out of it. And then I had actually staged at a a ramen shop that. I really didn't like. I was like, this is not what I'm into. And then eventually a friend told me about Momotaro and he was like, well, there's an opportunity here for an Izakaya. Um, the boss, the, 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 the chef there at the time made ramen and things that I liked, but it was a little more, uh, a little more fusiony with American ingredients and stuff. So mm-hmm. it wasn't really traditional. And I was kind of, I'm, I'm more of like a traditional Japanese food guy. So eventually he left. I took his position, and then I ended up running the izakaya for two years. Uh, Elaine got a job at Fat Rice Bakery, which she just kind of did amazing there. Uh, she got a ton of notoriety and was very successful. And uh, that's pretty much our story of getting to Chicago. It was it worked out far better than I would have ever imagined, and it's I'm so glad that I didn't end up at Smith, which is like 
one of the biggest restaurants now and everybody's like, Oh, Smith is amazing, but I wouldn't be where I was now. And I'm so happy um, with like my position, uh, just where I'm at getting to do what I love, you know? Yeah. That's, that's amazing. How did you fall in love with Japanese food? Because like you said, I don't know if you said it in this interview or the, the one that kind of pooped itself in zoom room, but you said there in Cincinnati, in Cincinnati, there isn't really too much Japanese restaurants and things. So how did you find Japanese cooking? Well, I mean, I was just a huge uh, Japanese nerd growing up. I mean, I watched a lot of a lot of anime and uh, <laughs> manga, and, and I played a lot of video games. Uh-huh. And I just I saw the food in the games, and I knew, and then like the animes, and I knew nothing about it. And I just was always like, "How do I find this food?" Um, uh-huh. And then I kind of just searched for it, and there was nothing in Cincinnati. I had to go to like Asian markets, and they had frozen ramen which was a little bit better than uh the dried stuff there was a brand yeah. called like miyogo i think i think it's called miyogo uh-huh. that had a a gyokai tonkotsu that uh-huh. was like my thing that i was like this is what ramen's supposed to taste like but i've never had this flavor <laughs> anywhere else and i know i love it uh-huh. um because i i was cooking things out of like david chang's cookbook and i was like it doesn't taste anything like what i'm tasting here even though this is like uh-huh. a pre-made package i was like this is the flavor i want um, and I've kind of like built my palate off of that, honestly. You built your palate off uh, of a frozen, frozen instant ramen or frozen ramen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's kind of a little bit embarrassing, but. No, no, that's awesome. And, and, and is it fair to say that your interest in ramen came from Naruto or something like that? Like a anime like that? or uh, that... I don't think so. I mean, I think I uh, honestly, I was never really a Naruto fan, but. <laughs> I think ramen was just one of those things. I saw it and I loved eating noodles. I yeah, yeah. I had a, a, a time that I went to college and was a total disaster, but uh-huh. I would eat dried ramen and frozen ramen there. And that was just kind of where everything got crazy. You know, I also had a lot of like, I loved a lot of Japanese movies and, and a lot of like Chinese films as well, but I just always uh-huh. had a thing for noodles. And then ramen was kind of what reigned supreme with all the noodle dishes. So Awesome. Awesome. So how did you get into the ramen making part? Because you're working at Momotaro and I and I've read some things about you online prior to the interview where everybody is only talking about you making omu rice. You know, omu rice is the oh. thing that Eric is known for. How did you get from that to making ramen? Uh, well, I was always kind of fooling around with ramen. I mean, I was like I had the Momofuku cookbook and such and I was making noodles out of there, which is like simple, but they're you can still make a decent noodle with his recipe. Mm -hmm. And I was trying things out of there. I read Ivan Orkin's and I was always like making ramen, but it wasn't very good. Um, And then when I was at Momotaro, that's when I could really start getting like great ingredients. And uh, I feel like that's when my flavor started to improve. It wasn't great, but I kind of knew what I wanted to, to do and what, just what, as a general picture, like looking at a bowl, like what I wanted to be in the bowl. And uh, it was from a lot of like videos. I, I love to watch old ramen videos from like the nineties, which there's like a ton of them on, on YouTube. Um, there's yeah, one guy yeah, that I watched those channel. Yeah. And I just, originally I watched those and then I got into more modern stuff, but I, I originally was doing this show you cause I've always kind of been like a fishy show you guy. And, mm-hmm. uh, I made this shoyu ramen that was on the menu for a little while that was like super smoky. 
um, I would, I would take like the, the chashu, like the big rolled chashu and I would smoke it and then I would, uh, simmer it in the soup. And, um, that's the work. I like it's beautiful, smoky flavor. And then I'd have a lot of like dried Saba and a lot of, uh, katsuobushi, all like the thick cut stuff, which I think that makes a huge difference in ramen is being able to get the thick mm-hmm. cut stuff. And, uh, it was okay. I had no idea what I was doing for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just trying to go off like flavors that I enjoyed. And eventually uh, Mike came in with the sun noodle guys one night and it was on like the craziest Sunday ever that it was me and one other cook. And we were doing like 152 people, which is like insane to do a full menu uh, with two people and that many people. So it was, it was a scary evening, but after there was a, I didn't know who Mike was at all. I just knew that like the uh-huh. sun people were in and I was, I was nervous <laughs> <laughs> and uh after this server came up to me and was like, this asshole wrote a review about our ramen and he said it's <laughs> not good. And, <laughs> and that, his, his review was not that brutal. It was just like, uh, well, I, I kind of like this and this more with it. But he, he wrote a decent review on it. And that, and that person was Mike, of course. I, though, of course, that person was Mike. And uh, I, I kind of sent him a message and was just like, hey, I just wanted to kind of like clarify on some things with the ramen. It's not necessarily this, but it's this and this. Just like your standard, like I'm embarrassed. I just yeah, want to tell yeah. you some more details about it. And that's that's how I met Mike. And then Mike oh, and I had a lot of conversations after that about ramen. And I mean, Mike is just the... He's the, the knowledge master of ramen. Yeah. Uh, the, he can really point you in the right direction. If you're like, uh, well, I'm thinking about this and this and this. And he's like, well, he doesn't want to say like, that's a terrible idea, but uh-huh. he's just like, maybe you should steer towards this direction. And it's usually mm-hmm. what you need to, to hear to make a decent bowl. He's got that, mm-hmm. that algorithm for it, you know? Yeah. So at this point I kind of just like scrapped everything and started over uh with with his guidance whether he knew it or not that he was kind of helping out and at this time we were also running a full izakaya uh, and it wasn't like a a ramen heavy restaurant um i was doing omurice all the time uh people if you don't know what that is omurice is like a a soft omelet that you put over fried rice and then cut it open and it opens up and it's this big gooey mess that you put sauce on top it's delicious and looks disgusting but it's awesome and uh that's what people were kind of coming into the restaurant for not ramen at all um and then eventually i got i got really into miso because i went over to mike's one night and had his miso and i was like oh this is so good it's crazy because i had never really had miso like that with all the the layers of flavoring it was pretty uh-huh. much just just miso soup, you know, with noodles in it, <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah. frozen, frozen things and such. But when you when uh-huh. you taste his bowl, and then you can taste the wok, you can taste the aromatic oil, and you can taste uh, the fruitiness of the of the miso. I was like, "Whoa, this is crazy!" So that was kind of when I started getting into miso because it was the winter was. I think it was probably fall, so I was like, "I need to come up with like a winter miso." And um, there was a guy a writer in Chicago that was a kind of a friend of Mike's that had written some articles about him that came in to eat it and he liked it because it was different. Um, uh-huh. It was, uh, I had followed like Mike's 
Mike's kind of like formula on it, but we used different misos. We had like a nice uh, chunky barley miso that we used in it that was like really sweet. Nice. That, um, that kind of like balanced out that saltiness of the shiro and the aka miso. But for the most part, we were we were following Mike's formula on it. And uh, mm-hmm. the, guy, the guy that came in to try it loved it because he loved Mike's ramen as well. So he wrote a nice little article about it that that was like uh, a restaurant in Chicago that isn't known for ramen until now, which was <laughs> I, I've seen that I, I seen that article when I was doing some research for this episode. Yeah, I was kind of reading through that. Um, but, yeah, so, how, so that's how, when we got some some notoriety for that. Oh, so how many bowls of ramen were you serving at that time? Because like you said, it was more like an izakaya, like a pub style, you know, gastro pub kind of thing going on. Um, you're making omurice, like, but how many bowls were of, of ramen were you serving at that time? Not that many. I mean, we were on like a busy night. We were only selling like a dozen ramen, I would say. Um, and omurice, we were selling like 30 to 35. I mean, it wasn't a, it's a, it was a smaller like bar, but that's, uh-huh. that's not that much in comparison. And the, the omurice was always like the, the big thing we would sell a lot of. We sell a lot of uh tonkatsu and uh, karage mm-hmm. and things like that but after that article came out people started coming in to try the ramen which was like uh, a blessing and a curse um obviously people were coming in oh, to, like to try ramen but it wasn't what they expected everybody kind of wanted heavy uh tonkotsu ramen and when they had this it was kind mm-hmm. of on the like lighter side but and it was rustic. It had like charred cabbage and uh, thin pieces of pork belly that we would like mm-hmm. char in the pan and then char the miso mix and then deglaze it. And it was just not what people wanted. So people that were like hardcore uh-huh. ramen fans would get it. But people that weren't ramen fans would come in and be like, I don't really. I mean, it's miso, but they wouldn't really enjoy it, <laughs> which was was terrible. But. But sometimes what was nice about that situation was that we weren't a ramen restaurant. So uh-huh. we were allowed to do things that we'd be like, well, it doesn't really matter if people like it or not. We can kind of do what we want to do because we have this full other menu that people mm-hmm. can order from. They don't have to have this ramen. That's not the the popular mm-hmm. thing, you know? So that's how you kind of got to know Mike. He, he kind of came in to Momotaro left a review and then that sparked the, the, the that was the spark of a wonderful ramen friendship from there how did you go about um transitioning out of um momotaro to your own uh pop-ups in cincinnati uh well we we kind of just did it i mean we we created an instagram uh we started blasting photos and telling people about it obviously Elaine had a decent following on her Instagram. So people kind of moved over. Some of my followers did as well, but it was all kind of built on social media. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just planned an event. We, we rent a space, a, a commissary kitchen that we can make soup there. Elaine does all her pastries for the events there. And we set up an event with a friend. I had a buddy that originally when I came to, Cincinnati, I shopped around the idea to a bunch of people about our concept that I was like, hey, we're thinking about doing this. We want to know if you would want to be involved and in kind of opening up something. And of course, no one was like, <laughs> no one wanted to throw money at us or anything. But one of my buddies uh-huh. was like, um, 
uh, well, we can't help you out on that end, but what if you did pop-ups out of our new spot that we have? And we're like, sure, we'll take anything at this moment. So let's do it. And so the first event, I think, was actually a decent turnout. I think we've really had like at least 50 people come out, which is more than I thought would, because Cincinnati is not a ramen town at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of the problem and the the usual struggle that everybody that wants ramen wants tonkotsu. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. so they came out and I think we did probably show you and shio or maybe it was, we probably <laughs> did miso and and show you in the first in the first one and people were kind of were like yeah it's just not what I was expecting and uh-huh. we're like okay sorry about that but it, the momentum is definitely grown uh with every pop up. I mean we've had some that have been a little bit slower but for the most part it's gotten busier and busier, which like the last two have just been out of control because we've wanted to do a ticket system that people can just like come in and they don't have to wait. But Cincinnati mm-hmm. is not necessarily a, I'm going to buy a ticket to go to a ramen uh, event sort of thing. Uh-huh. So, so we've just done all a cart that people come in, they line up, we do uh, a small menu. So we do like two starters and usually two or three ramens and then, Elaine does a bunch of desserts as well. And it was okay for a while, but now it's just like out of control. Like the, there's only 40 seats in the restaurants and they, in the restaurant and they fill up in 15 minutes. And then there's a huge line wrapped around and it's just a mess. That's, that's, that's pretty crazy. Cause like you said, Cincinnati's not like a ramen town and, and people that do know ramen are asking for tonkotsu, but have you ever done a tonkotsu at your pop-up? Uh, we did a gyokai one time, uh, and we've done gyokai skamen, but I've never actually. I did an EAK one time, which mm-hmm. I wasn't like super happy with, but it it, it went over okay. Uh, the gyokai, <laughs> I think, is a lot better just because I'm a, a gyokai guy when it comes to uh-huh. tonkotsu. Um, but it's funny because we the we do have a few Japanese people that come in and they always go for like the, the gyokai and such. So it, it makes me feel oh, good really? when they do that in the skate ends. So. Oh, oh. Oh, that's interesting. And I, I just have to say that the dessert with ramen idea is pretty genius. I see like in Kazo has um, his new shop. They have like soft serve ice cream and stuff right next to him in the same area. And I think that's, it's like a perfect match because after you eat ramen, you kind of do want something a little sweet mm. after that. So it's pretty awesome. I mean, we pretty much just took what Elaine was doing and what I was doing and uh-huh. fused them together. It was kind of just a natural combination. Uh-huh. And it was funny when, because uh, I was talking with Keizo about his place opening up with the kind of like the collaboration that they would still have pastries and mm-hmm. uh, bread. And I was like, oh, man, it kind of sounds like what we're doing. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But obviously. So, so do you make everything... Problem. Are, are you making everything for your pop-up? Like, um, like how are you doing that? So you have the commissary kitchen. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people that listen to this podcast that want to get into doing pop-ups. A lot of like really avid ramen home cooks and things. How did you, um, do you have any advice for those people to get off the ground? Like how to start? Do you think, like you said, Instagram first, marketing first. And then once there's like an awareness of it, do your first event. Is that what you would recommend generally? Yeah, for sure. I mean, pretty, everybody loves pretty pictures, you know, and luckily my girlfriend is great at taking photos. Um, and that's what I would recommend. And you got to try to secure product. That was the biggest thing was luckily I have a lot of experience in the restaurant industry and dealing with purveyors and such. And I, 
I had this Japanese purveyor in Chicago that I like bugged them a bunch and they were like, well, we come down to Cincinnati once a week so we can deliver to you then. And they were very suspicious when, cause I didn't have a restaurant. I just had this commissary uh-huh. kitchen that I was working out of. And they were like, so do you have a restaurant? And I was like, no, <laughs> do you have a storefront? I was like, no, we're just, we do catering. We do special events. And my girlfriend sells wholesale too. So eventually uh-huh. they like, decided they would deliver to us. So securing product is a big thing. I mean, obviously if you have an Asian market, that's like a nice one, you can get by, but there's a lot of products that you need to get from uh, purveyor, which it's, that's what's crazy about Mike's is that Mike goes and sources all this stuff and mm-hmm. makes amazing ramen without having a professional purveyor. Um, what else? Yeah. So what kind of things are you getting from that? What kind of things are you getting from that um, that wholesale kind of thing? What's, what's um, the ingredients? so the the thick the thick cut katsubushi, the thick cut sababushi is mm-hmm. big. Uh, the rashiri kombu, mm-hmm. uh, we can get really nice nori. The we get like nori from the Ariake Sea. Um, what else? Um, they have a plethora of different shoyus, uh, which is huge. I mean. Mm-hmm. You don't need to buy expensive ones, but it's nice to be able to get uh, the different styles and blend them that you can't always get at a at a store. Like we use in our show, Utade, we use four different soys, and then we sometimes use a finishing soy depending how crazy we're feeling. But it's nice to have those options. What else? Um, and then, I mean, and you got to find where to get noodles. That's the biggest thing too. Um, when we first started, I was getting noodles from my purveyor because I just didn't think I would have the time or anything like that. And then mm. eventually I bugged Kezo enough that he sent me some noodles. Cause I was like, Hey Kezo, I had your noodles and I hadn't met Kezo in person, but uh-huh. I had talked to him a couple of times online and was like, well, I had your noodles at Mike's place. They were amazing. Do you think we could ever get some to Cincinnati? And then finally, after I bugged him a bunch, he sent us these noodles. And then after I tried those, I was like, well, we can't go back to anything else at this point. <laughs> Kezo's or anything. And then uh, Kezo was like, well, you know, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to start making your own noodles. And I was like, <laughs> why'd you, why'd you tell me that? And so at that point we were like, all right, we're going to start testing, making our own noodles, which I had made some, but not on like a large scale. And um, what do we do? So I started looking into flowers and such. I looked at local places. We ended up getting some nice uh, whole, like some, wheat berries from a, a local farm and so we mill those on our own uh, to make the noodles we get some nice kentucky flour from weisenberger is a place that does that sometimes it's not always available so we get it from other places but mm-hmm. for the most part that that freshly milled uh, wheat berries is big to get that nice like aromatic uh, wheat flavor in there and luckily i work full-time at a another restaurant to help pay the bills while doing this Mm-hmm. and they have a very nice pasta machine there that after hours when the place is closed at like one in the morning, they let me use their pasta <laughs> machine to crank out 80 orders of noodles, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but making 80 orders of noodles is a big deal. If you don't have the yeah. proper tools, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which this is like, it's, it's nice to have that machine that's large and strong and can handle all the, the low hydration, but, 
mm-hmm. it's still difficult to do that without like the the nice Yamamoto or uh, what's the name of the the company that makes that? Is it Yamamoto? Yeah, or, I, I'm not. I think it's Yamato or Yamamoto or something like that. Yamato, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. It's the one that the website that they have all the kind of like science behind noodle making on their website as kind of like a sale to their noodle machines. I, I know what you're talking about, but I, I don't remember either. Um, that's like, I, it almost seems like your experience working at these restaurants was a huge advantage, not in the sense that I would think where, of course, you know, the, the flavor combinations and how to cook things really well, but the, the logistics and the economics of sourcing, sourcing, um, ingredients and things like that. These are a lot of things that people who are home cooks don't really have a grasp of and any idea how to do. So, yeah, yeah I mean, if you're with these purveyors, if you're a big company that buys a ton of product, they're always mm-hmm. going to be like, yeah, I'll do anything you want. Like, sure. Yeah, sure. You need samples. Yeah, we got you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you're a little guy that mm-hmm. has to really like talk Turkey with them and be like, I need this, they don't really want to do things for you. So it takes a lot of kind of pressure. <laughs> so you can get the great <laughs> stuff, but you got to, you got to know how to deal with them. But um, also working at like the French laundry, it, it seems more realistic doing everything yourself because there were no shortcuts taken on anything there. And it was always like the greatest possible product. I was, I was a butcher for a long time there and Mm -hmm. doing that, I kind of learned what great, what great pork looks like, what great chickens look like. Um, Obviously I don't really work with beef, but I worked a lot with like Wagyu beef and such, but Mm -hmm. knowing what a great chicken is, is like a blessing because you can buy one that's organic and all these like buzzwords on there, but sometimes we'll be like, this chicken's not very good. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, uh, can you tell luckily, us like how, how you tell what a good chicken looks like a little bit? I'm kind of curious. Too, um, now. I mean, it's just usually like, what's the water content on it? Like, uh-huh. does it seem like it's been frozen before? Cause obviously mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how nice a chicken is. If it's been frozen, the cell structure of like the breast is going to be kind of blown out. You know, mm-hmm. like if you, if you have a fresh chicken that's never been frozen and you make chicken chashu out of it, it's mm-hmm. going to be a totally different thing than uh, a chicken breast that's been frozen before. Like mm-hmm. the texture is just going to be, the mouthfeel is going to be better. The The chicken breast that's frozen is going to have like a slightly more like mealy texture to it, you know? Um, but it's, it's sometimes just visually when you've seen enough. Um, it, what's crazy is that like the, the nicer the chicken is, it's usually a little more beat up. I don't know what the deal is, but when they process them, uh, cause I think they're just going through like smaller butchers and such that are doing it. But these, these like big factories, I don't know how they're killing them, but they're killing them with no issues. So they're always, like, <laughs> but if there's like a, if there's a little bit of like bruising on them and such, that usually means that it's like a small operation. Uh, um, obviously you don't want bruised chicken, but it's just kind of a side yeah. effect. Cause when we were buying these like amazing chickens from Pennsylvania that were getting shipped all the way to California, they never really mm-hmm. looked that great, but the, the meat itself tasted amazing. And these ones that I'm uh-huh. getting now, um, I found like a farmer in Ohio that, that I can buy directly from that. I can get these fresh chickens that they're expensive, but they're not insanely expensive. Um, mm-hmm. and, when you eat the chicken chashu and you eat the karage made from the legs, it's like, wow, it's like a whole different world. And it's so much extra work. But like I said, once you've had it, you're like, I can't really go back. That's the problem. How do you balance the economics of that? Because you are sourcing these really high quality, hard to get ingredients. And then ramen in itself is not a very expensive thing. You know, you're not going to be charging $50 Mm -hmm. a bowl for it. 
how do you balance those two factors? Like you want to, as a chef, you want to put out this really high quality product. You're sourcing high quality ingredients, but at the same time, you have the realities of people not wanting to spend too much money on it. That's kind of the nightmare of it. So that was a big factor with getting, I was getting noodles from Keizo, which Keizo is very affordable, but Mm. it still goes into the process. And we're like, well, if I make my own noodles, then I can pay this much per portion instead of paying this much from Keizo, which I can take that money that I'm saving and I can put it into buying these really nice chickens that are a lot more labor, but the flavor is unreal. I mean, the, the I, I compare it to like being as good as the ones that we had in, in Japan when I went to go visit. Oh, nice. So you kind of just got to, you got to figure out a way. Um, and uh, I've been trying to, everybody wants uh pork chashu on the ramen obviously and everybody comes in if it doesn't have it they complain but i'm really trying to do this thing that like it's a uh, beak to tail um, like your bowl is pretty much all the parts of the chicken in different ways because when you go to when you go to like a fancy michelin star restaurant you'll you can kind of judge how good it is by like when you get the protein dish and they're like how many times did they use the animal on the plate so if you just get like a little piece of of quail breast on the plate with like some sauce and some puree you're like well they didn't really think about it too much but if they take the breast and they confit the legs and they put a little bit of that confit into some ground chicken and then they put that little bit of chicken sausage under the breast um, and then they have this little piece of sausage on the side and they just like you can see that they took the the animal and they used it in so many different ways Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I'm kind of trying to do with, with ramen now that when you, when you get your bowl, obviously the soup is made with the chicken bones. Um, but we bone out the legs. We, instead of just like using that for karage, maybe we take that mm-hmm. and we make a sausage out of the lower end of the leg. And then we take that and we put it inside the chicken thigh. We roll that up. We poach it. So you get this nice, almost like half moon shape uh, chicken thigh slice on there. But then it's got this like fatty uh, ground chicken sausage on the inside. So that's almost comparable to eating a nice uh, fatty piece of pork belly, but it's not. But uh-huh. then you're having the chicken, this one chicken in so many different ways from like the soup. And then you have the breast that's also used as like the, the post chashu. And then you have this fatty piece from the leg um, just to try to get away from, from using pork belly as much, you know, cause it's, it's mm-hmm. so common pork shoulder. I mean, I'm more of a pork shoulder guy than a, mm-hmm. than a, a pork belly guy, but I'm just trying to take a different view on it and take that, those skills that I learned as a butcher utilizing the animal as much as possible and putting it all in like one bowl, which I think people are going to complain about because they want pork (laughs) belly, but sometimes you got to just like do it. And then Uh hopefully eventually people start to understand what you're doing because people aren't going to understand it at first. They're going to be confused and they're going to be like, why is there sausage in my, in my, (laughs) uh, my ramen? But I mean, it's, it's, same thing as like a a wonton filling, you know? So like you have chicken thigh and wonton, in one thing. Um, and it makes more sense when you visually see it, but because we recently did this truffle, truffle show you ramen that we took mm-hmm. the chicken breast from, from the chicken, obviously. And we took the other breast and we made a chicken mousse out of it and put 
uh, truffle pate and then and seasoned it. And then we took that truffle mousse and we spread it on top of the the chicken breast so that when you eat it, you have a slice of poached chicken and then you have this nice truffle infused piece of uh, chicken on the outside. So, and it's, it's kind of seamless when you steam it all together. Well, when you poach it all together, mm-hmm. like I said, it's kind of hard to understand if you don't visually see it, but it's, we posted uh, it on my Instagram a little while ago. That sounds amazing. We're just trying to think of um, you in different ways, you know, does that help with the economics too? Like if you're not doing pork at all, then you're just using the oh, yeah. chicken to its maximum capacity. Then you can actually bring down the cost of the bowl a little bit because, or not the cost, but the pork cost is yeah. super expensive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It would, especially if you're trying to get like, I haven't found an affordable, like super nice local pork distributor. It's, um, I just don't know if I ever will <laughs> yeah. trying to. But it's it's difficult to make the numbers work. Yeah, yeah. What what is your signature bowl? If you if you had to say like this is my signature bowl for uh, mochiko, you know what would that be? Mm, I mean, I guess the our shoyu. I mean, it's always changing, but I love shoyu. Shoyu is my favorite style. That has like the that has a nice a nice dashi blend to it. Um, that's how I would personally like to eat it. The new wave I like, that's just like purely chicken and we've done it, but I think it's just a little, little one dimensional. I felt that when I was in Japan and I went to eat at those places that were just chicken, chicken and (laughs) water, um, even like Shimazaki-san's place, it was like, this is amazing, but I'm kind of just having really good chicken and soy, which maybe Mm -hmm. I'm just dumb and I can't, uh, I'm just not seeing it. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it tastes delicious. But I like, like those layers of the fish in there, like mm-hmm. the blended of the dashi and the, the chicken, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think just our I – mean, I usually call it the kotawari shoyu just because it's got a nice little fancy buzzword on there. But but it, I would say our shoyu because uh-huh. that's the one that we usually always do during a pop-up. So, I saw the truffle shoyu ramen. Is that in, an inspiration from Tsuta in Japan? The Michelin yeah, I mean, it was, that's, I mean, I had it when I was there and I liked it. Um, mm-hmm. More, it was, it was like, it's 2020. Let's do something exciting that I thought that it would get people in the door. And it definitely did. It was like, we sold out of it very quickly. It was pretty much everybody that came in was like truffle, 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 truffle. But uh-huh. uh, it obviously drew inspiration from, from Suta and uh, Ishida in New York. I think Ishida is the only place that I know that like regularly does it. Um, I think I wasn't a huge fan of the one at Ishida. I, like when I had it, I don't want to feel this is going to sound bad, but I was like, I feel like I can do something a little better than this. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was still, it was still good. But I, I felt like we could utilize truffle in, in different ways and just make it a little more, I felt that it just had truffle oil in it. That was kind of like the thing when I had it. I was like, this is ramen with truffle oil. Mm-hmm. But, How did, what do you think is in, like as a chef, like when you went to eat at Suta, what do you think he puts in that? Like if you were to de- deconstruct that bowl? I don't even know. That was like the, <laughs> it's hard to remember. I, I remember I took notes on it and stuff, but I actually liked, uh, my girlfriend had the, 
the the shio and i like the shio oh. a little better but i mean oh, i think really. it was just like the quality of the meat and the chashu uh was mm -hmm. amazing and it was just really well balanced it wasn't like overly truffly that's a big part mm -hmm. of it um is you don't want it to be like a ton of truffle oil and i think he he i think he uses like a balsamic that he cooks the truffle oil into so it's nicely balanced with that acid the whole thing acid's so hard with ramen because you don't necessarily want to add acid to ramen but you still need to balance mm -hmm. it out somehow mm -hmm. um and i feel like it was done really well with with that but also there's a lot of like hype around that place too so <laughs> yeah maybe yeah. i was maybe i was skewed by the hype but it was <laughs> it was a it was a beautiful bowl and uh i was a little disappointed that the the, the guy wasn't there. It was all just like his cooks working. Uh, I don't think he's there yeah. that often. I think he's a little too big now. All right. Let's um let's go into some questions that we got. Got a few questions here, mostly from Mike, who we talked about earlier. Or not mostly. <laughs> <a couple of laughs> they're gonna be they're gonna be rough then. <laughs> no, gonna, no, no. It's gonna be like I gotta make this guy look dumb. <laughs> so so Mike uh, Ramen over Mike Ramen Lord asks, uh, who are some of the chefs that you look up to? Uh, I mean, obviously, I think everyone kind of looks up to Keizo. He's kind of known as the, I mean, I think it's generally accepted that he's kind of the best in the U.S. Um, I'm sure there might be some other people that could contend with him. But for the most part, he's crazy. He, uh, he does everything himself. He works yeah. super long hours. Um, and when I went, because we, I went out there with Elaine for uh, the Ramen Shack pop-up that they did a couple months ago. And just oh, seeing yeah, his yeah. dedication is is crazy. Um, I remember I was there, and he had been there already in the morning. And then he left, and then he was like, "Yeah, I'm probably going to go home." And then I saw a, a message that he posted on Instagram at like 1 a.m. that he was still working. I was like, "Man, this guy's crazy. He's always working." But it's just like yeah, his dedication, yeah. and he wants to do like everything right. Um, mm. And like his knowledge of ramen is is absurd, and his uh, yeah. like his variety that he can do all these different styles with, with no issues. Cause you see like Shimazaki san, who's a, a ramen God in Japan, but he's also a little more one dimensional than like mm -hmm. Keizo. Keizo can kind of like pull it all off, you know? Cause he has these, this show you that I had never like, I felt like even the stuff I had in Japan didn't have like the layers when I was, when I was like, when I was drink, drinking the broth, I was like, oh man, there's so many layers going on here. Um, and that would kind of like blew my mind. And then he has his ganja and his quiet storm, which are like these super heavy rich bowls that are like the total opposite of it, but it's still great, you know, and he can, he can do them both with like no issues. Well, I'd say he's kind of the big inspiration. Obviously Mike's an inspiration that I look up to, even if he's not a professional cook, but somehow he, he has all this knowledge that, when I talk with him, a lot of times I'm like, all right, I just need to stop talking because he's saying too much informative stuff and I'm going to look really dumb <laughs> if I keep talking. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, like those two guys are like I talk. The thing about Mike, too, is I tell him like there is a there's a whole generation of people trying to make ramen that you are the guy like he is the guy for this group of people, like people who may not even know who Ivan Orkin is, know who Mike is, you know? And he's like, I'm just a guy in Chicago making ramen at home. And it's like, no, you don't you don't really know the impact that you've had. So yeah, maybe one day he'll figure that out. Well, uh, it's crazy because like obviously Ivan Orkin, David Chang are like the big names in the uh, US for ramen, but uh -huh. you would never be able to like talk to him or anything. But 
to people that are true ramen fans, they would be like, oh, Mike and Kezo. And those guys, yeah. I don't want people to go bug them now. But in theory, like you could probably talk to them if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. And they would probably be willing to like send you a message back. I wouldn't be too forceful on it, but and I hope this doesn't make people everybody send them a message. But they're they're <laughs> nice guys that are willing to like teach you when most people aren't, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Mike also asks, what sort of techniques or styles are you experimenting with currently? Uh, I mean, well, the truffle, that was a, a, an experiment that we recently did with the chashu, and I think it went over really well. And kind of what I was talking about earlier with the 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 thigh chashu that we put the super fatty uh, pork sausage in there. What else am I experimenting with? Um it's just a lot of noodle testing, which I, I like usually bounce ideas off of Mike for that. But, but it's just like, what if we do this? What if we go, we try to go a little lower on the gluten and all that, but it, that's just like an endless amount of trials. Cause mm-hmm. a big thing with noodles is that you have to make these large portions and it's a lot easier to work with if it's a slightly higher hydration. But mm-hmm. if you have 80 portions of noodles in a box that are slightly higher hydration, they tend not to hold up too well. So it's like, where do we find that perfect amount of hydration that the quality and the flavor and the chew of the noodle is good enough, but we can still work service comfortably with it. Um, And that Mm. we're not spending five hours making them because it's like the difference between a 36 hydration and an eight and a 38 hydration in like the production, you're saving yourself like, two hours of work with that 38% just because the dough is so much like easier to work with. That's kind of like the point of like, of like difficulty. So Uh that's where you got to kind of test things and be like, what do we like? What can we experiment with? But I'm not doing anything too crazy um, because one, I'm a white guy making ramen. So I don't want to start getting wild out there because there's a (laughs) lot of people that don't like white guys making ramen and i hear that very often in cincinnati (laughs) and uh if i start getting too far away from like the classics then Mm -hmm. i feel it's going to be an issue uh so that's kind of like with the chashu i don't think anybody's going to be upset if i Uh start going crazy with chashu um but if i start doing different soups and taking crazy ingredients and start putting them on top i don't think people are going going to really like (laughs) what are your thoughts on um matching noodles to soup do you have any thoughts on that oh i mean i really have like no knowledge on that i was listening to mike's podcast the other day and heard that about his his uh theories on that i've always just historically kind of what you would get with that bowl is kind of what i go off of but obviously when he said a heavier noodle or a heavier ramen needs like a more substantial noodle i was like yeah that makes a lot of sense and that's what (laughs) <laughs> what you see like historically but mm-hmm. i mean i am not an expert on that one i would just say typically a thinner noodle i i'm more of a straighter than a curly guy i'm not a big curly guy i like taimomi but is if i'm making a lighter ramen i typically go for a more gentle uh straight noodle which is what you see in japan that's a big struggle too it's like in japan there's all these like tender uh, flavorful noodles that you get at the nice high level shops. But in the U S everybody wants something that's like chewy, you know, that's going to be like something they've had from sun noodle. And if it's not like chewy and curly, they're kind of like, uh, it's not my thing. So (laughs) 
I also try to find that like happy medium of, of like chewy enough, but still sticking to kind of like that, that Tokyo style, you know, of, of that noodle. But I, um, I don't make that many styles of noodles. I pretty much do a, like an all purpose noodle. That is my standard, like 36 or 38 hydration, depending on what mood I'm in and like a skamen noodle. And sometimes I'll like Tamomi those skamen noodles, but for the most part, it's that's the two I stick to. Okay. Do you have any, what, what things do you think contribute to the chewiness and what things do you think contributes to like the other, the opposite end of the spectrum as far as ingredients um, or techniques or anything? Well, we've been like talking about, we've also been experienced, uh, experimenting with like the, the ratios of alkaline salts with the, mm-hmm. for a long time I was doing the, the, the 80, 80 sodium, the 20 potassium. And recently mm-hmm. I've been messing around with the, the 60 potassium and the 40 uh, sodium, which mm-hmm. seems to be something that the, the normies like a lot more. Cause it's like that more like snappier noodle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've usually been doing like 2% tapioca or yeah sorry tapioca that also helps with like that chewiness and that that's kind of more what the normies like because before when i was doing the more tender noodles it was just Uh, not going over that well with people you know uh, i I was i was loving them my girlfriend was loving them but Uh but most people weren't too excited (laughs) because it's more similar to to a western noodle you know and they don't yeah, we don't want that. This is this isn't ramen noodles. I'm eating spaghetti. Yeah, yeah, I gotta think. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, the, I like that the name. The normies <laughs> is that the is that well, the. Well, I mean, that's term? that's the nicest thing that I can say. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's go to the next question. Let's kind of go through this. Um, the official Bill Hader asks. I don't think he's actually Bill Hader. I think that's just his. <laughs> screen name <laughs> but he says for shoyu ramen do you marinate your eggs and chashu in the same tare as the seasonings for the broth seasoning i think i might have typed that wrong uh as in like the tare is that what you yeah mean? i think i think he's meaning the repurpose the tare for the chashu and eggs to kind of keep a cohesive flavor or are you doing complementary flavors for um, those i'm well this is i can go on a rant on everything but i'm kind of a weirdo in that i don't really like boiled soy so uh-huh. For chashu, I typically usually hit it with hit like my chashu with a little bit of salt, and then I cook it in like a uh, uh, a kombu sui, and okay. simmer that for a while, and then I take that leftover kombu sui and mm-hmm. hit it with soy, and just to like marinate it for like a few hours in there, mm-hmm. and then usually I utilize that marinating liquid for my for my eggs, oh, so okay. it kind of has all that like infusion going on there. I blend it a little to cut back the sodium because I usually go a little higher on the on the salt for the chashu, but mm-hmm. then you kind of get that nice umami from the the kombu and and you have the porkiness of it and mm-hmm. the soy, you know. Oh, that's actually a good tip. That's a that that actually was a lot better tip and answer than I was expecting from that. I I was expecting <laughs> it to be like yes or no, you know, or kind of thing. But that's really cool because yeah, the pork has that um that uh, inosinate kind of glut- glutamic component from it. And if you're mess- mm-hmm. uh, mixing with the kombusui, then you're amplifying both of the umami components into the eggs at the same time after that. So pretty cool stuff. All right. So Hella Ramen asks, what component do you start with when you're developing a new dish? Oh, the soup. I mean, it's always the soup that's the most important thing to me. Um, 
I don't really care about toppings personally, but everybody loves them. Uh, but if I have like a great soup, a great noodle and scallions, I'm like mm -hmm. the happiest person in the world. But uh, you always got to hit that soup first. Um, and then you got to start looking into other things after like, all right, we eat the soup. How's it taste halfway through? How can we change the flavor on that? Something I've also been like experimenting with, with a lot, like this seems very simple, but with like different type of zest. So you eat the soup, you're drinking it, but usually when you get about halfway through, it kind of starts to like mellow mm -hmm. out and gets like flat on flavor. So uh -huh. that you like when, because at the beginning you have like the, the, the oils and everything that are great. And you like, you can taste all the different things, but about halfway through, it's kind of like, eh, it's flat. So I've been doing a lot of different like zests in the bottom of the bowl. So like when you get to the bottom of the bowl, that's when like that zest starts to like really kick in. So, and then like on that last sip, you get like a super like bright finish to it. Um, so it's kind of like a delayed reaction. But yeah, that, that's interesting because that is, that is something that I think a lot of people don't think about or realize or even notice that as you're drinking it and as the temperature comes down to you know, the flavor is, hmm. is, is changing actively the whole time. That's why in Japan, they all say to try to finish the bowl in 15 minutes or less because you don't get the temperature drop in things. Yeah, you don't um, want to get me started on people eating quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was a question I had for Mike. It's like when you when you serve them at a pop-up and you just watch them and they're taking pictures and talking to their friends and, you know, it's 10 minutes have gone by and they're still just, they haven't even taken their first bite yet and you're just watching them, you know? That's kind of, I would, I would yeah. imagine that's pretty infuriating if you, if you catch an well, eye. That's like the, the question is like, how do you inform people on like ramen and like yeah. eating it properly? And yeah. like, cause no one wants to eat quickly. They all want to hang out and socialize, but uh -huh. then it leads to unfinished bowls, which is, which there's nothing worse than seeing an unfinished bowl. It really yeah. like tears you apart. Yeah. Um, and it's like, all right, if you didn't really like it, I understand. Like, you don't have to finish it. But I know it's like mm -hmm. an okay enough bowl that you can finish it. And you came for a ramen mm -hmm. pop-up. So, like, uh -huh. do the whole thing. But there's still these bowls that aren't finished. So, mm -hmm. I actually, like, went on a, a wrote kind of like a ranting email to uh, a, a local writer the other day, like, <laughs> about it. Hoping that maybe she'll, like, say something about it in this upcoming article. And my girlfriend uh -huh. was, like, proofreading it for me because I am, I am not – good with that sort of thing so and she was giving me a look like oh i don't know if you want to say this but like sometimes you just gotta like upset people and know that like that's how it's done i mean yeah like you don't want to come off like the soup nazi from seinfeld but at the same time it yeah is. or, or sano-san i mean we yeah, need yeah. we need an american sano-san i think i told mike that he has to be the guy that like is mean to people about finishing ramen because he's the only one that has enough pull to, <laughs> to get people to do that I mean, it, it, it's a real thing because the longer it sits, the noodles absorb more of the soup and get soggy. And then the, the salt level, the perceived salt content goes up as the, as the broth cools, yeah. the soup cools. And, you know, it's going to, and then, and then you get the review on Yelp, like, oh, it wasn't that great. But it, it wasn't that great because the guy spent 20 minutes talking before he took his first bite. So, of course, it's not going to taste that great, you know, if you took the bite as soon as you got it. Mm. I, I made ramen for my wife yesterday just because I had some leftover from the video I shot and she we needed lunch so I was like oh let's make you some ramen I got leftovers put it in front of her and she's like on her phone and stuff and I'm just like watching her and it was only like a minute and already I was like I could not do a pop-up because it was a minute she was just on her phone t texting her friend or something and I was like 
Just yeah. fucking eat it. <laughs> yeah. It just, if I see swollen noodles, it's like, oh. <laughs> I try to compensate for that now. Sometimes when I serve other people, I just like slightly undercook the noodle because I know I just expect them to just kind of talk for a while before they eat it and stuff. So, yeah, but that's that mm. is something. So, is that like a real thing too? Have you noticed that? Like, I notice sometimes when I don't do the bowl, that's the, my like when I feel like I've messed up with the soup. Is that it gets way too salty as it cools down? Like, how do you balance that? Like, or you have any tips for it? Like, how I can fix that? Like, sometimes when I hit it right, like, yes, it didn't. I could, I could drink the whole thing, but a lot of times it's not quite right. Halfway through, I'm like, I don't want to drink this anymore. Like, yeah, I know you kind of, yeah. Acid's the big thing um, that's going to kind of balance it out so that it doesn't seem as like salty and heavy. Um, But it's like, how much acid do you? add to ramen because it's like it's a no-no that's why i think Uh that kind of like a little bit of diced up lemon zest in the bottom of the bowl is kind of the the cheating method on that because it's not like super strong like changing the flavor Mm -hmm. um i know a lot of like we'll i'll use usually use like a little bit of like uh a couple drops of apple apple vin that we've Mm -hmm. like infused with stuff or like i'll use a little bit of like fresh meyer lemon juice but I feel like they all need a little bit of fresh acid put into them just to like balance them out. Um, so that when you get to the end, I mean, Shimazaki san finishes all his bowls with, with, with apple vin, like his house made apple vin. So I, mm-hmm. I feel like if he does it, like there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. I know that Keizo and like a lot of his things, he mentions the, the yuzu juice, which is the same effect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Does the yuzu juice get like incorporated into the soup though, or does it kind of tend to sit at the bottom? Like I'm not too. Familiar. Oh, it, it's not... that's a full like that that fully gets incorporated, but it comes through. I mean, it uh-huh. definitely yuzu is so strong that you get you can get it, and that's one of those like beautiful layers of the of the dish, you know. Mm-hmm. That acid that you can only taste if you try to notice it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So so. This is I, this must be somebody that you know because they're asking. Um, yeah, so then, B, then B, don't B, read it. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so be scrubby or I think it's be scrubby. Did you, did you have any passion, any of this passion for cuisine when you were growing up in Woodfield? So this must be. Oh you know. God! Oh no! I don't know. I I didn't have any thoughts of that. This is. Oh, I know who this is now. <laughs> but no, I mean, I was I was just a kid. Um, for the most part, I mean, I, it wasn't until I was like in high school and I was full on like nerding out on Japanese stuff. But that, those were different times when you you couldn't be into anime and stuff. You were you had to be a closet anime fan back then. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, <laughs> now every, how, how, everybody's doing it now. Everybody's got a yeah, Naruto yeah. shirt. <laughs> <laughs> how old are you, by the way? Because I I'm, I had a very similar experience. Well, I'm like ethnically Japanese, but even then, like, you know, yeah. you couldn't really talk about it. Like, how old are you now? I'm uh, 32, I think. Oh yeah. yeah, so like I'm I'm 37. <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna be 38 um, next year and. Uh, yeah, like when I was in high school, you couldn't talk about that kind of stuff, you know, even more so. Yeah. All right, man. Um, I think that's about all the questions I have. I do want to talk about, like, those are the things that I struggle with. We can kind of go back to it. Just like the balance of the bowl, creating a bowl that that people can enjoy and eat, but also can be flexible enough to be consumed in an American-style restaurant timeline, you know, the 40-minute dinner kind of thing. 
is that even possible do you think or is it kind of no, like not at all yeah i mean i it's just not i mean i think 10 minutes is even like long you know yeah, yeah. but it's just always not going to be great um no matter how much you balance it um i mean i don't know what to do about it i don't know how to inform <laughs> people <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> we need someone like sanosan in the u.s that uh-huh. becomes a public figure um maybe david chang can do it that can be like you gotta eat ramen fast and you gotta finish it <laughs> but until the the masses know it's just going to be an issue because yeah uh i don't know i mean you can always add acid you can always add sweetness um but mm-hmm. it's just not gonna be right you know yeah because yeah. cold soup's never great yeah cold yeah. soup's terrible if even if you have the best hot soup when it turns cold it's not really that pleasant to drink so I, 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 when I, when I shoot videos, I always leave like a little bit and I just taste it as it cools down as I'm like cleaning up and stuff. I'll just leave the bowl there and then slowly, if I, if it's, and then just keep tasting it as it continues to cool. And then when it's like just room temperature, I still, I'm still tasting any yeah, every single time. It's not very good by the time it's at the, uh, at the end. So yeah. I'm oh, yeah but also another of... thing that, that I was thinking that you just brought reminded me because we were talking about cold soup was mm-hmm. um, something that I experimented with for a little while was the, the Ida Shoten style skamen, which I don't, mm-hmm. I, I think that he was the first guy to start doing it, that they do the, they put the chilled noodles in the, like uh, the thick kombu suite on the side. Mm-hmm. So, so when you have it that you're, you're coating the noodles with that and then dipping that cold liquid into the soup, which is somewhat bizarre, but it gives you like even more layers of flavor. Cause you have this like intense, show you soup and then you have that cold slimy kombu sweet that's like loaded with umami and then you have like the yeah, cold yeah. noodle so it's like just layer overload but it was mm-hmm. that was like the dish that i ate in japan that really like blew my mind like their show you their normal show you bowl was great it was like straight chicken mm-hmm. and soy sauce it was wonderful but the skamen was like oh man this is like a whole nother level of craziness and that was something we did for a pop-up that i was really surprised how good it was and I think it was just like that, that, that combo sweet move is, is golden. Um, and I don't know if he was the one that invented it or not, but it's, 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 it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. That's like, and that's pretty cool too, because that's, that's something that even like ramen nerds in America haven't really seen too much of yet. So it's pretty cool. Like of all places in Cincinnati, that that was one of the first places that it's being served because that is not what yeah. you would think. It's a traditional ramen town at all. What do you think about oh, no. the future of, um, ramen in america we kind of talk about this a lot mike loves to talk about this like where ramen can go in america and um because he's been in it for a long time and i'm relatively new to Mm. this whole ramen thing i see it like this is just like the start of the first quarter and there's a lot of room to grow Mm. and but what do you think as like a chef who's been in the industry for a long time and um where do you see the Um, potential of it i mean i don't see it getting too crazy um I feel like it's going to kind of always be that like cult following, which I think is enough. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's ever going to be a time where people are, cause it's not a, it's not a casual thing. It's always like ramen is a serious thing that you go eat and you don't mess around, but people want to mm-hmm. just have a good time, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't think ever, anybody's ever going to like really appreciate it. There's always going to mm-hmm. be um, people with the dedication, like that Kodawari Sano-san style, like getting the, mm-hmm the best ingredients, knowing where they come from, knowing every aspect of the bowl. But I don't know if people in the U S are ever going to truly appreciate it, you know, mm-hmm. but we can try. Um, we can try to use local ingredients as much as possible. Um, 
that's that's kind of as far as we can take it you know do you think there's a there's there could be a potential shift away from tonkotsu's like you said a lot of people love tonkotsu it's obvious why it tastes great and it's mm. the intense mouthfeel and just the whole experience but um there was an article that Kazel posted earlier this year about um, food trends that that have died over the last 10 years and it was ramen was one of them and it was because and the author kind of wrote like I'll be fine never eating another bowl of tonkotsu ramen in my life. And I think that might be an opportunity in itself to kind of, okay, actually ramen was, ramen itself is not tonkotsu ramen. Is it, it's more, mm. much more than that. And do you think there's a way for the general people, the, the normies as you call them or whatever you call them uh, to accept that kind of stuff? I, I know that's what you're serving in Cincinnati. And I think that's a great test market for this kind of stuff. But do you think that that's a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think so for sure. Um, as long as you can make it approachable. Um, sometimes I make things a little too out there that I go a little too hard on the fish. But I feel like if you cut things back um, and make it just something that they can enjoy without it being something so different than what they've had before, that's the problem. Sometimes I'll be like, I have this new style that no one's had anything like it. So they're like, Oh, I don't know if I like that. But as long as you create a product that's like approachable, then yeah, mm -hmm. I think they can do that. And I think you can catch on because eventually people are going to realize that you don't feel like garbage after eating a show, you ramen. <laughs> and when, yeah, you have, yeah, yeah. when you eat, I don't know. I mean, I've seen people that can crush multiple bowls of tonkotsu, but for the most part, after you eat a bowl of tonkotsu, you feel awful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I've, I, I Mike was talking about high five, but high five ramen's like the big tonkotsu place in in Chicago, and it's very enjoyable. But the second after you get out of there, you're like, oh my god, I'm gonna die. I need to go home. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know if I've really had like a show you that I've I've felt terrible after eating. That was I ate multiple in one day in Japan and was like, no, and I'm full, but I feel good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. Okay, I think that's about all the things we have, and we've we've been struggling with this recording, so I think we can call it there. This is a pretty cool. Uh, a, this is a really great episode, actually. Once yeah, I get it cool. all, cool. I mean, together. I can I can I can rant forever. So no, it's good. <laughs> we'll have to get you back on. So like, I'm actually recording a roundtable podcast with some of the other guys later today. Like, um, Mike's gonna be on there, and some other people that are doing pop ups. We got to get you back in for one of those because I think uh, oh, cool. yeah, like talk about um, flavor development and really help some home cooks out yeah, do you have anything else with... oh, what go ahead no no i mean i saw that you have that you're gonna have uh hosaki and uh vin on there so yeah that'll yeah, be exciting because yeah. i got to work with those guys in in new york and they like it was very intimidating because uh everybody there kind of like knew more than me so i was like oh <laughs> i might be i might be in the wrong place because they've all learned all these like amazing things from keizo and like right wow. when we started the event and they all like the first guest walked in and they all put out like a big like Hiroshima say I was like oh no I'm in the wrong place I can't <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not used to this but they they all knew what they were doing I'm used to uh, working in like a, a a dark kitchen in the back you know uh, that's awesome all right man oh uh, thanks so much for coming on the show and I I feel like we kind of missed some opportunities with uh flavor development so maybe in the next time we'll get into that a little bit because uh I think you got a lot that of stuff to good. share. Yeah. All right. Sure, sure. Cut it there. All right. Thank you, man. Thank you. Oh, oh, oh before we leave, tell everybody where they can yeah. find you. Oh, yeah. Of course. Um, 
You can find us at uh, Mochiko Cincy. That's M O C H I K O C I N C Y. Um, and then I'm also Eric underscore Benz, but check out Mochiko. It's got better stuff. Mine's just kind of bowls of food, you know. <laughs> it's a lot prettier on and Mochiko. Then, and when's your next pop up? Uh, that's undecided right now, but hopefully okay, okay. we'll know soon. Okay, so just stick tuned to Instagram to find out when that next one is coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Thanks, man. It's really fun. Thank you. See ya. Thanks so much again to Eric for coming on the show. I had a great time talking and I learned a bunch of things. I definitely want to try that little bit of acid in the bowl to balance everything together. Please give him a follow at Mochiko Cincy, where you'll not only be able to see his great looking ramen, but also see his partner Elaine's really stunning looking pastries too. That's a great combo they got going there at their pop-up. They got ramen and then you can get dessert too. If you want to ask any questions for future guests, please give me a follow on Instagram at WeHaveRamen. I usually put a story up a day in advance of the interview with a question box and you guys can ask your questions there. And also, if you want to watch some guy stumble his way through trying to figure out how to make ramen outside of Japan, you can subscribe to me on YouTube. Just search WeHaveRamen and the channel should pop up. Oh, also, before I forget, thanks to my good buddy Mark for providing some beats for the podcast now. It kind of sounds a little bit more like a real radio show and not just me talking. So thanks again to Mark. All right, I'll see you guys all in the next episode. Peace.